You're listening to Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about. By my co-host, John Syracusa, I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is November 25th, 2011. This is episode number 44. We want to say thanks to unitedpixelworkers.com, MailChimp.com, and Reinvigorate. Reinvigorate, by the way, is uh, providing our bandwidth for this episode. Simple, affordable heat maps and web stats. Check them out at reinvigorate.net. Use coupon code 5x5 and you get 10% off the life of your order. How you been? Just dandy. Dandy, huh? How was your Thanksgiving? Mm -hmm. This is the day after Thanksgiving 2011. It's November 25th. Mm -hmm. Special day for uh, for people here in the United States of America. A day of rest. Are you are you resting? Yeah, I'm not going to work. Well, that's good. Yeah, I mean that's something. Because mm-hmm. usually, I don't know if people know this or not, but you are you are frequently taking you know your lunch break. You're you're away from work, and you're here to record. And that's usually that's your mo. That's right. We're in the middle of a work day. Crazy. What'd you do for Thanksgiving? Anything uh, exciting? Anything special? No, just the usual. What is the usual? Stuffing. Mashed potatoes. Oh, sweet potatoes. Pies. You know, the whole nine yards. I didn't host it myself this year. Oh, where'd you go? Kind of just went to a friend's house. It's kind of a relief not to have to do all that cooking, but the downside is that you don't have all the leftovers. Oh, so you you you've got nothing to eat today, nothing special other than well, I got I got some leftovers, like you know the the shared here, some leftovers for you to take home, kind of leftovers. But it's not the same as when you make it yourself and you have all the leftovers or the majority of the leftovers. So what did you guys do? Uh we 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 had uh, we had it here. We had one guest. My brother in law was a guest, and of course we've got the uh, the two kids. One of whom is not you know eating solid food because she's a a little tiny baby. But it was still quite, you know, quite, quite, a, quite an ordeal trying to, you know, because you've got, you've got a, a kid, you've got a guest, you've got lots of different items to prepare. It was a, a production. It's enough, you know, once a year doing that. But then you kind of got to do it again at Christmas. Right? Yeah. Not as bad as the turkey, though. The turkey is always a big thing because you have more options for christmas dinner like you could do a, a ham i guess yeah much easier to, to cook than a turkey what do you do with a ham how does that work usually you buy the ones that are already cooked and you're just basically heating it up and you can you can do that with a turkey Ugh, come on no you go to whole foods you get their uh their you know free range pastured turkey and phew, better it's than already, anything it's already cooked well it's it, it's what they call pre-roasted so it's not like it's it's not like you're getting it in a, in a uh, you know like a, a heated thing, like a take at a, you know, a drive through or something. You still no, have to not, heat it up. And that's no, uh, that's no good. Oh, it's very good. Big thumbs down on that. Take my word for it. Big, huge thumbs up. In fact, the thumb that is doing the thumbs up is so supreme that it just destroyed your entire thumb. That's how, <laughs> that's how much right. of a thumbs up I'm giving this. You go to Whole Foods and you get one of their pre-roasted turkeys. It will be the best turkey you've ever had. How do you feel about tofurkey? Uh, I don't even get me started. <laughs> All right. And keep in mind, keep in mind, I was, 
I was a, no, it's not uh, it's because not? it's okay, it's made from tofu, which is made from soy, which is not paleo. That's not paleo. No, soy is uh, the antithesis of paleo, maybe second to gluten and sugar. Um, but no, and keep in mind, I was a vegetarian for many years, and I I would I still never ate a tofurkey. All right, no, me neither. But all right, just trying to put some boundaries on your mm-hmm. food taste. Good for you. So you're ready to start? I thought we had. Well, you know. Start, start. Yeah, so well, I'm definitely ready then. All right. Considering I thought that we had started, and in fact, we had not started, then I would definitely say I'm ready. This, this ain't no back to work. It's not like we start, and then we start, and then we really start. The show gets better as that show goes on. And we need to, the problem is you get to warm Merlin up. He, he, he starts cold, and he thinks he's doing, you know, he thinks he's doing all right, and then you compare that to 20 minutes later, and he's on fire. You start out, and you're pretty much level-headed the whole way through. Or whatever the equivalent of that is for you. All right. So we have two small items of follow-up. The best and worst kind of follow-up. What is the best and worst kind of follow-up? It was the best of follow-ups. It was the worst of follow-ups. Yeah. It's pronunciation follow-up. Oh, that is the worst. (laughs) So it's the worst if you don't care about these things, but it's also the best. Okay. All right. Uh, So the first, I don't even know why this is in my notes here, but it is. So I assume I said the name of Werner V-I-N-G-E, the science fiction author. Did I say that on the show at any point? Hmm. It seems like the only reason I can imagine it would be in my notes is that I said it on this show. But anyway, it's in my notes, so I'm going to go to So that science fiction author who I'm a fan of, uh, his last name, spelled V-I-N-G-E, is apparently pronounced Vingy. And not Vinge, Vinge, as I have said in my head through my entire life and many times out loud. V-I-N-G is Vingy. I've got that, like, secondhand from people who have talked to the man himself. And millions of other people who are also convinced that's the way you say his name. Because they probably heard him talk or seen a pronunciation guide or read it on Wikipedia or whatever. Vingy. That kind of blew my mind because there was a, one name I didn't think I was mispronouncing, but apparently I was. And the next one that I know I did mention on this show a couple of times and someone uh, felt compelled to write in after hearing it on multiple shows and hearing me mangle it is the uh, video game, the originally a PlayStation 2 video game and now remastered for the PlayStation 3. Uh, the name of the game is spelled I-C-O. And I've always been pronouncing that as I-C-O. I don't know why I've chosen to pronounce it that way, but that's just the way <laughs> you know, I've been saying it. Apparently that's wrong. Well, this is from uh, Alex Muntean. I'm sorry, Alex, if I'm mispronouncing your name, M-U-N-T-E-A-N. Uh, and he didn't really clarify if he lives in Japan, speaks Japanese, or uh, just learned it or whatever. But apparently the name in, uh, on the Japanese game is two characters. And the first character is pronounced like, a, the, uh, like the letter E, like E. And the second character is pronounced Ko. So it should be Iko, not Aiko. And what he says about it is, uh, in Japanese, it's a made-up word. As far as he knows, he says it doesn't have any meaning. That's why it's written in katakana, which is the syllabary used for most foreign names or loan words. Uh, And in Japanese, there's, uh, I think there's a couple of phonetic alphabets, but katakana is one of them, and there's one pronunciation for each symbol, no matter what the context. So it's not like English, where the same letters can be pronounced 20 different ways, depending on where they are, completely silent or whatever. So it's very clear in Japanese, these two characters, it's iko instead of aiko. Now, I still... I'm unsure what the game manufacturer or Sony or whatever intends for the American pronunciation of this game to be. Clearly, this is what the game should be called in Japanese, but there are many cases 
where words in English eventually have different pronunciations than the words in other languages. And even for products, they they will say, well, you know, even though this is how you pronounce it, if if you were pronouncing the name correctly in French or in Japanese or whatever, in English, the pronunciation is different. Uh, but it's really diff- it's difficult to find an authoritative source. Like, who would you ask? Would you ask the game developers? Well, they're all Japanese. So they don't really care how the game is pronounced in, in their country. Would you ask Sony itself? Maybe they have an official pronunciation. I don't know. Uh, so, at any rate, I... I will assume that ICO is the correct pronunciation. I'm not sure I will be able to stop myself from saying ICO. Uh, I'll have to I'll have to sleep on that for a while and decide where I'm going to go. That's it for my follow-up. Two, two pronunciation topics. Hmm. Yeah. I, I really looked through it. I'm like, but this is really all the follow-up I have. I, I don't really have my... I think the Steve Jobs bio life discussion expunged a lot of follow-up i think maybe i have a few other items that are related that aren't really follow-up but they're just like reader mail or reader questions that i could use to spawn other topics uh but that's not going to be today but today do you remember what our topic is going to be today can you have, do you have any guesses hmm nope from a long time ago we microsoft talk- again yeah okay so we we're going to talk All about right. what else microsoft that was how did we get off of that i think the bio came the out. Bio came out. That was that was two episodes, and then even before that, we were off track on something. But anyway, we're finally wrapping around to it. My notes from a month ago are still here. Uh, and interestingly, when I was gathering stuff up for it, I was reading an article yesterday. That was uh, an article that was published on the nineteenth. That is a good way to sort of enter in on this topic. An article that didn't exist when I originally made my notes, but I just added to them. So this is an article in Forbes magazine by Steve Denning, and it's an article about why companies die. Uh, and it it's a quote. It's quoting from Peggy Noonan, who I don't know, but uh, and then she's quoting from the Jobs bio. And then Steve Denning, the author of this article, is talking about uh, both of those things, and I assume also promoting his book, which is called Radical Management, which I'm assuming ties into all of this. Uh, so the quote from Jobs, this is from the bio. I know I know. I said we talk about Microsoft and we're getting into the Jobs bio, but trust me, this will, <laughs> this will go somewhere. Uh, this is a quote from Jobs from the bio. It says how, how companies die or how they decline or whatever. The company does a great job, innovates, and becomes a monopoly or close to it in some field. And then the quality of the product becomes less important. The company starts valuing great salesmen because they're the ones who can move the needle on revenues. And move the needle is CEO speak for, uh, you know, you you say you've got a monopoly in your field, and uh, what companies and, and Wall Street want to see is you need to be constantly growing. So once you're selling to like ninety five percent of the customers, it's it's much more difficult to have the next quarter be like double this quarter or ten percent upward. And so moving the needle is like how can you how can you show an improvement in our financial results? How can you show that our company is doing better than it did last quarter? And once you've saturated the market, the way you can get those last percent is you know is the the company starts. Uh, hinging on salespeople because then you need like salesmen to sell those last percentage and to really just make sure you keep reselling and re-upping those contracts for whatever it is that your company has a monopoly for. Uh, and Steve Denning commenting on this, he says in the article, it's not just the salesmen, it's also the accountants and the money men who, who search the firm high and low to find new and ingenious ways to cut costs or even eliminate paying taxes. The activities of these people further dispirit the creators, the product engineers and designers, and also crimps the firm's ability to add value to its customers. But because the accountants appear to be adding to the firm's short-term profitability, 
As a class, they're also celebrated and well rewarded, even as their activities systematically kill the firm's future. So this is saying the money men, like how can how can we show better results? Well, we're already selling to everybody we can possibly sell to. Let's see how we can cut costs. Let's see how we can cut corners on our manufacturing. Let's see how we can find a way, you know, to tax shelters for our income. And the people who do this uh, end up being rewarded because, like, oh, you know, the salesmen, those are the guys who are who are you know increasing our revenues each quarter and these money guys and the accountants are finding ways to increase our profits by lowering our costs, right? So it becomes like this weird numbers game. Uh, and Denning calls this playing defense instead of playing offense. Um, and because he's saying in the article, it's easier to milk the cash cow than to add new value. So you're saying, well, why don't, you know, so say you get a monopoly in one market. Why is the strategy then to do all this stuff to, you know, uh, Find get the salespeople really cranking to make sure you don't lose any of the ground you have and renew those contracts and try to get a little bit more money out of each person in each contract and have the accountants figure out how to lower your costs because that'll increase your profit margins just little by little and then reward those people for doing it because that's defense. It's saying, oh, you know, oh my God, we got this, we've got this thing, we've got a good thing going here, we've got a, a near monopoly in this market, we just got to hold on to it. That's playing defense instead of playing offense, which is all right, that's great, we did this thing, we're dominant and whatever. What are we going to do next? Uh, and that's much harder and more scary. And I've talked about this before as the most important lesson of Steve Jobs that, you know, he showed that large companies don't have to be, uh, you know, don't have to play defense, uh, don't have to be beholden to shareholders and Wall Street and just do the, the, the defensive things. Um, and at the very end of this thing, they were talking about why it's easier to, uh, it's more difficult to add value than to cut costs. Uh, Another reason he lists is that these executives have found ways to reward themselves lavishly. As Upton Sinclair noted, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. So this is just the worst of the worst, where the company starts playing defense. The people who get rewarded are salespeople and accountants, and all the rewards that they reap, instead of being folded back into the company, because, hey, what, you know, what does the company need money for? We already know what we're doing. We have a monopoly in this market or whatever. We, we don't need any money on R&D or to make new products or whatever. Let's just reward ourselves. Big bonuses, pay off the salespeople. You know, it becomes a little club where this company with a monopoly in a field becomes a way to make a small number of people very rich for simply maintaining that monopoly. And that, that's really the worst of the worst. Uh, that's the ultimate sickness of a corporation, right? So we're going to talk about what, what ails Microsoft. Obviously, I'm leading into this because I think what ails Microsoft is they... Well, it's not as simple as saying they started playing defense. But the, the similarities to this article, this article, which, by the way, I don't think even mentions Microsoft. It mentioned like Xerox and IBM and other companies that uh, as uh, examples of companies that did this. So Microsoft did get a near monopoly on a market or a, a government certified monopoly, if you want to put it that way, in the United States on the desktop computing market. Uh, but did they start playing defense? Uh, it can be argued that Microsoft has... It, Microsoft could have written this article and say, yes, we are aware of all of these things. We know that we can't just defend. We have to play offense. We have to try to enter new markets. We have to do all these things, right? Uh, so they had the Internet Tidal Wave memo where Gates uh, it was yeah, came to realize through the input of his subordinates and stuff and just looking around that the Internet was a big deal and we just really need to turn this whole company around and and get on this Internet thing. Everything has to be about the Internet and just, you know, Let's take this big company and turn it. And he was the big CEO and he made it happen. And he crushed Netscape, which I'm assuming he considered a victory. Not Perhaps not understanding that crushing Netscape is not the same as defeating the internet or becoming 
savvy on the internet. They created MSN, which is a money loser for years because they thought they were fighting AOL, but AOL wasn't a real enemy to fight. Like Microsoft has been trying to, it hasn't said, oh, we're not we're going to ignore the internet and we're not going to try to have an online service and we're not going to be into web browsers. They've been trying to not be defensive. So you can't pin the, the sickness described in this article exactly on them in that regard. Uh, and the Xbox and stuff like that. Someone inside the company says, hey, I think we should make game consoles because that might be the future of computing because it's all about owning the living room and we have the technology to get into that business and we, we have PC games. Let's see if we can adapt that. And they did the Xbox and they lost billions and billions of dollars over many years. But certainly you can't say the Xbox was a case of them playing defense, right? They are playing offense. They're just, they're just not doing a good job of it. I mean, <laughs> a, in many cases, they chose the wrong enemy. Or, or they spent a lot of money and were never successful in the case of MSN. Like, it, that's a combination. They all they chose the wrong enemy and they never really defeated that enemy. That enemy died on, of, of its own natural causes. All the while, they just lost money trying to attack it. Uh, so how do I think this relates to what what I think Microsoft's problem is? The, the problem is not so much that they were going to be on defense all, uh, all the time. Like, oh, let's just defend everything we have. The problem is that all of their offensive strategies in terms of like how we're going to break into a new market, how we have to react to a threat, so on and so forth. That was all well and good, but they were a big enough company that they said, while we do these offensive things, oh, and by the way, we certainly can't do anything to lose what we've built. Right? So they did all this offensive stuff, but it was just a given that we must also protect Windows and Office, which are their two big money makers. Obviously, we will continue to protect them and we will, you know, go off on these new initiatives and try to do, you know, all these different things and try to work on a tablet computer and, uh, you know, get into the gaming market and the online market and make a web browser, you know. But of course, you know, Windows and Office must be protected uh, at all costs. And uh, so that's, that's different than the Apple strategy, which is go off and do the new thing. And if the new thing totally destroys the old thing, so be it. So the example of that would be the, the iPhone, where the, the iPhone and iOS initiatives uh, were launched at a time when the iPod was a huge percentage of Apple's revenues, and they were dominant in the music player market. And they didn't say, well, we're going to make this new iOS thing, but of course we have to do everything we can to defend our 70% or whatever it was market share in, in the music player market. Uh, of course we need to defend that. They said, look... The, our iPod market share revenues, profit, everything about it is going to start going down. And that's okay as long as we're the one cannibalizing ourselves. So they didn't do all sorts of bending over backwards and shenanigans to make sure their iPod uh, you know, revenues and sales and market share just stayed exactly as it was and tried to grow and just defend it to death. They said, look, if it dies, it dies of natural causes, so be it. The world has moved on. It used to be the music players were where it was at. Now that a lot of that stuff is being subsumed into cell phones and that's where we're going to be next. Uh, Microsoft has never done that. Microsoft has never said, we are going to do this game console initiative. And uh, we think that the game console is going to be the, the platform of the future and the PC is not. So we expect game console revenue and profits and sales and everything to go up. And we expect PC sales to go down. So we're going to start, we're going to start cannibalizing our own PC business by like selling people Microsoft Word and Xboxes. Now, this is a silly example, obviously. But I'm, I'm just saying, like, giving an example of a product that, that Microsoft did produce... Uh, they would never allow it to do things that hurt its other businesses. Uh, so that's what that's the thing I have in my notes here is that Microsoft has been defined by the fear of losing what it's built. Right? They, they they're afraid of losing the, the that big thing that they built, which is dominance of the desktop operating system. 
Uh, either that, or they've never they've never produced anything they thought potentially could cannibalize their existing business. Like you say, well, the Xbox is a silly example. What do they make that could could possibly cannibalize their existing business? Maybe they've only introduced products which were not natural replacements for the desktop PC. So of course, the desktop PC has been defended because they're defending against other competitors, not against themselves. Someone in the chat room said that, that the Xbox uh, cannibalized the gaming PC. Microsoft never made its money on the gaming PC. Uh, ATI and NVIDIA perhaps made their money on the gaming PC by selling high-end video cards at large profit margins, but that wasn't making Microsoft any money. Uh, if you played games on your PC, which you can continue to do so, Microsoft makes money on its Windows licenses. And uh, the next point I'm going to get to is what Microsoft mostly makes where is all that revenue coming from? It's not coming from individual PC gamers buying Windows computers for their house. Microsoft's cash cows very quickly got tied up into what I call enterprise entanglements, where you're selling large numbers of computers to corporations. Uh, you want to sell them licenses for Exchange Server, for SQL Server. You want to sell them the dev tools over the making stuff, and you want to sell them a license for Windows for every single desktop in this huge 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 person huge company. They sold, they sold Windows and Office to corporations. And yes, home users buy Windows and Office too, but that's not really a regular recurring revenue where you get subscriptions and really like that server software with the exchange licensing. It used to be per C licensing for like, you know, the Windows NT server and the desktops and all that stuff. That's where the big money is because then you get, you know, that you, you can't get that kind of money out of individual consumers. Yes, they have the, 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 the uh, scale for consumers and they get those, you know, whatever they get, 10, 20, 30 bucks for each Windows license attached to a PC that's sold, but they really want that, that enterprise income. And that tight relationship between Microsoft and the enterprise created the situation where Microsoft was willing to listen to what the enterprise wanted. And that's why enterprise loved them. Enterprise loved the fact that they could buy soft hardware from different vendors and pit them against each other. And, and they would talk to Microsoft and say, we really want to know, we really want this feature and that feature. And we want to be able to do remote deployments. This is the IT department talking to Microsoft, not the individual people using computers and corporations, obviously the IT department. We want, centralized control of, uh, you know, software installation. We want to be able to control uh, the Internet Explorer installations and say, the set the security policies for them. And we want to be able to uh, uh, remote update them to new versions and uh, just everything the enterprise wanted from them. We want an exchange server with centralized control over the, the all the uh, phones we put out so that if someone connects to an exchange server with their mobile phone, we want to force them to have a keypad entry code on their phone so their phone is locked and all that business. Uh, that relationship between Microsoft and the enterprise made it so that the thing driving the development of Windows wasn't individual consumers at home, and it wasn't even people working in their desks and businesses. It was the IT department at, at, the, uh, at large corporations, right? And so this is the situation that, that Microsoft got itself into. It's, it's most important cash cow is a product uh, uh, being driven by someone other than the end users. And that that is always death for, for your product quality. If your product is, it, you know, what, what is motivating your product development? It's not the end users, like what would the end user like? Then right away you've got a conflict of interest because you're making things that people aren't going to like, but they're forced, being forced to use by the IT department, right? Now, Microsoft probably knew it was in this situation. Uh, what what the, the thing I want to get into this, the, the heart of what I'm trying to get into in this podcast is uh, not so much where did they go wrong, what lessons do we can take for it, but like sort of an alternate history. What could Microsoft have done differently? 
what if you could go back in time and explain to Microsoft how the future is going to play out uh, and they believed you, they said, all right, well, so, so what do we do? What do we do? What, what could we do that will prevent <laughs> the present state of Microsoft where they've been knocked off their perch as the biggest technology company? They, they're seemingly irrelevant in so many businesses. They're, they're struggling to get into new business. You know, what, what can we do to prevent that from happening? Uh, and the thing I think about is like, well, well, how did Apple sort of turn things around? Uh, and it's not, it's not, it's not a good scenario to present to the Microsoft people. I go back in time and talk to the Microsoft people and say, well, so here's what Apple did. Apple almost went out of business, laid off thousands of people, lost tons of money, went through multiple CPOs, uh, CEOs, uh, and was supposedly 90 days from bankruptcy. All right. And then they brought back their old CEO or they brought in this, you know, this great guy, Steve Jobs, and he fired more people and cut more projects and, and basically tore the company down. It's sort of like the equivalent of an alcoholic hitting bottom, right? And then he made, he picked like one or two, you know, simplified everything, removed tons of products, abandoned customers, killed entire platforms and then just picked one or two special products that he was going to pay attention to, like in this case it was the iMac, and then I mentioned the iPod, and put all his his you know weight behind those. Uh, that doesn't sound like something you could sell to Microsoft in 1995, uh, you know. So, but I think that was a key to Apple's success. Like Apple had the luxury of slimming down to near death sizes before Jobs came back and saved it, and he saved it by cutting even further. You can't tell Microsoft in 1995 what you, what you have to do is destroy your business and make it and make yourself almost go bankrupt and destroy all shareholder value and become like falling off of the Fortune 500, maybe falling off the Fortune 1000, and then finally you can you can get yourself in position to be a success in the future. That's sort of a non-starter, right? Uh, and I think I really do think that if Jobs had come back to an Apple in like 1990 or something where they were still making lots of profits selling really expensive Macintoshes, it would have been harder for him to have the success that he had because you would have to then convince everybody that we should stop making all this money. It's not hard to convince everybody that we should stop doing what we're doing because we're having massive losses. If you come in when the company's going down the tubes and you're losing money left and right, if you have a strong idea what you should do, they'll be willing to do it. But if you were coming into a company that's successful, like a an Apple in the 90s or like a Microsoft in, in the mid 90s, still making tons of money, you have to be really convincing to to, to make the company say, well, I don't want to make money that way. I want to make money a different way. Uh, so here's, here's the key lack of will that I think Microsoft, uh, the, key, the key mistaken reasoning that Microsoft had. Well, before, before you reveal that, we get a, I don't, I don't like to interrupt you when you're on, you know, you're on fire. All right. But we've got to do, we got to pay some bills. We've got to do a sponsor, but this is a good one. UnitedPixelWorkers.com. You heard about this? I have, but I have, you need to explain it to me because I don't know what it is yet. Okay, I've they, seen the name everywhere. The, the name is everywhere. And what these guys do is periodically they come out with some really cool t-shirts. We'll get you one. I believe that uh, they consider um, Massachusetts to be a, a full-blown state these days. So they will, they will make one for this. But what it is, is they have a 50 states sale. Very, very cool t-shirts. They're, they've done a special run, all 50 states and Washington, D.C. And these are really cool uh, T-shirts that have the state printed on them. They're American apparel, very high quality. 
and they were originally going to only do it uh, through this week. And I said, let's, let's do a special thing. We'll, we'll do a discount for five by five listeners and uh, we'll extend the sale for one more week. And they said, well, if we do that, we will, we'll, it'll be really stressful for us to get it out for the holidays. I said, well, do, do you want to sell uh, some shirts or not? And they said, okay, let's do it. So they're giving 10% off your entire order. You use coupon code five by five unitedpixelworkers.com. They also have a hoodie, but all these are printed on the, the super soft American apparel things. Whatever your state is, you go there, you pick Massachusetts and you will get a Massachusetts uh, shirt. So that's what it is. Unitedpixelworkers.com, 10% off your order. Code five by five. Don't they also have something where, uh, internet celebrities like uh, Mike Montero do uh, design their own shirts. And yes, yes, shorts. absolutely. Mike Montero has done one. I think Zeldman has done one. So people like that uh, can, can be recognized uh, by their, for their talents and uh, they will do a special shirt. But right now they're on this, but here's the thing I should mention this after this run, the 50 states yeah, sell, that, they're gone. That's what I was going to say. Like if you wanted to get the Mike Montero one, tough luck. It's yeah, it's late, gone. Right? Yeah. That's all right. too bad. So if you want, if you want a 50 state shirt, move now. Cause it's not like they just have a stock of these things and keep them around forever. Right. It is going to end November 29th, 2011. That's a mere four days from now at 11 AM is when it ends. I don't know why it, it's 11 AM Eastern time, but that's when it's over. So go get, you go pick out your state. And if you want, you can get all 50 states and Washington DC and you'll still get 10% off. That's a lot of t-shirts. Do you wear t-shirts up there? I do. We got to get them to send you a Massachusetts. Now, here's the real question. I've asked everybody this 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 week, but I want to ask you: Were were you were born and raised in? uh, Is it Rhode Island? Try again. It's not Massachusetts. No, it's not New York State somewhere. Yes. Okay. So, would you get New York State or would you get Massachusetts or both? If they had a Long Island shirt, I'd get that. Just Long Island, you know, the important (laughs) part of New York State. But uh, assuming they don't, I, I mean, I have to get Massachusetts. Like that's where I'm spending my adult life right so even though i grew up in uh on long island in new york i would i would go with massachusetts shirt i think although having both wouldn't be bad either well there is 10 percent off but i'm looking at the massachusetts one it's not bad everybody loves pixels all right I mean, that was, marco was talking about something in his show saying what upstate was uh, and, right and he was saying that some uh, anything that's north of where you are in new york that's kind of a <laughs> a humorous way to describe it but i think there's an actual definition of what upstate is it does get fuzzy around where he lives but basically it's easy to define what upstate is not upstate is not long island or the new york metro area and where you draw the line at new york metro area like how far north along the hudson do you go before you say okay you're out of the new york metro area there is some fuzz around there but it's not that it's not that big of a fuzz strip like uh, somewhere above Westchester around there at a certain point that, that there's a lot, the line is somewhere in that fuzzy region. Right. But there's the whole rest of New York and that's all upstate except for Long Island and New York metro area. So anyone in Albany who says they're not upstate, then bad news from they're upstate. Why is it bad to be upstate? Why is there? It's not bad. It's just like, you know, it, there is, where is upstate? Upstate New York or just saying upstate, that's that's where it is. And you say, where do you live? I live in upstate New York. Well, we most people should know where that is with some sort of fuzz around, you know, where does the New York metro area end as you go north along the Hudson? But certainly no one's going to think you live in, uh, you know, Staten Island, Bronx or Long Island if you live in upstate New York. But Albany is no ambiguity, none, you know. 
Buffalo, anything like that. That's upstate. All right. So where was I? Uh, I've actually totally lost my train of thought. I can't even know where I was in the notes. But I was, what was I going to say before the break? I would get so ring. interested in these t-shirts. I forgot to write <laughs> that. They're distracting. They're, They're very pictures. distracting. Uh, well, you were, t- you were about to reveal. It was a big reveal. I remember that much. It was a big reveal. You were going to give it all away. This is the, what you've been leading up to for 25 minutes. No pressure. No pressure. All right. So I think what, what I was getting at... Yeah, with the with the slimming down to near death sizes, right? Because you had just talked about Steve Jobs coming in and completely beating the uh, beating yeah, the company yeah. into but, a different shape than it was in before. But it was like almost dead at that point, right? right. So the whole thing. Chat room is saying, "What what could Microsoft do if you went back in time?" Yes, yes, that's I know that the overall thing, but like the individual part of my notes here. So no, no one wants to go into a company that's making money like gangbusters and change the way they do things. Uh, but oh, so here it is. I remember what it is. The, the key decision decision in Microsoft's mind, like the, the one thing that you, you need to change in Microsoft's mind is the idea that them not serving the enterprise IT market or like home PC users or P, hardware manufacturers or everything like that, being, being so afraid to do things differently than the thing that brought them uh, that, that big monopoly. And the thing that they were afraid of and probably still are afraid of was that if they didn't do that, if they didn't, if they didn't talk to those IT managers and say, what do you guys want? We'll work with you for the next revision of Windows and you know, work with the PC manufacturers and the hardware vendors and everybody, uh, you know, and Intel and AMD and just like be, serve, be the software component of the PC platform and like work with those guys. The fear is if they didn't do that, someone else would come and take that and take that business away from them. Remember when they were super afraid of Linux? Like, oh my God, you know, we're, we're making these money off Windows licenses, but Linux is free. What if Dell or HP or something suddenly start selling Linux machines and then Dell and HP would do these little dance moves over to the, to the, the Linux side of things and be all... Oh yeah, we're thinking of making Linux PCs, and Microsoft will get all scared. Okay, okay, we'll give you a break on when you know that's all this <laughs> break on the Windows licenses. This whole dance around, like they were always afraid that someone else was going to take that business from them, and that that fear, that fear that if we, look if we, we need to keep doing this Windows and Office thing, we know what it takes. We know what we have to do to win this market. And we know what it takes to keep this market. We need to continue to do what all the all the people, all our stakeholders in this market want of us. Because if we let this go, God, someone else is going to get it. And someone else gets it, then they're going to be the new Microsoft. And they're going to have billions of dollars. They're going to have the Windows and Office cash cows. And we'll be nothing. Right? And that's that that fear that, that someone else was going to come and eat their, their lunch was <laughs> the thing that, that most handicapped the company and probably still continues to handicap the company. Now, if I was back at Microsoft in those days, I would have tried to play this out a little bit and say, uh, so if you don't do this, if you don't do what this IT vendors want, if you don't make these hardware manufacturers happy, if you don't, if you don't mold your, your company and your strategy and all your products around these, these stakeholders who are not your end consumers, uh, if you break backward compatibility with the app vendors, like every, all the th- all the people who are, have a stake in Windows who you currently serve with your things, what are you afraid is going to happen? Who is going to come and take that market from you? Linux? If they said, well, what about Linux? Is this new thing? Well, maybe they didn't know or whatever. I guess they look, I've seen the future. Linux is not a threat to you. Linux is not going to come in and steal that market from you because they are just, it, Linux is not a company. 
it is an amorphous open source thing. Yeah, they're going to eat your lunch in the server space. You're right to be afraid of that. But like the desktop where you've won, you know, we, we own the desktop and corporate IT and the mail servers and all stuff like that. Uh, I'm, I'm actually amazed at how well Exchange is held up against the Linux mail service. And, is, and for the same reason is that, you know, it's that's not another company with the strategies. It's an amorphous group of people working on an open source product that has its place and is going to hurt you in business. But they're not going to come and take the, the PC desktop from you. They're just not. Linux on the desktop is a reason it hasn't happened. They are even less capable than you are of doing what customers want. And they're also not as capable of doing what the IT people want. So the IT people, like who are the IT people going to go to? Red Hat? Like an individual Linux company? You know, Linux is bigger than Red Hat. You can't just go to Red Hat and say, we're done with Microsoft. Microsoft has betrayed us. Linux, you are our savior. And then just talk to Red Hat. And Red Hat will be like, well, that's great and all, but we don't write Linux. You know, <laughs> I mean, There's a lot of people who contribute to Linux. So like, we'd like to sell you something, but you're not talking to Linux now. You're just talking to Red Hat. And, you know, it's a, so... I, Linux is not going to Linux just cannot take that market from you. Just constitutionally is unable to take the the, the PC desktop and uh, IT market as you know it away from you. Apple, Apple doesn't even want those markets. This I think is the killer one. Like BOS or Apple or whatever. Like oh they're going to take Apple. But after Steve Jobs, they don't even want that market. You keeping that market is helping Apple because I would be afraid if I was at Apple that Microsoft would do moves that took it away from the interests of that market, and that market would come to Apple and say, wow, Microsoft is doing things we don't like. They're not listening to us anymore. They're breaking compatibility. They're making our lives more difficult. We're looking around for alternatives. Can you help us? And I would be terribly afraid that if Microsoft had, if Apple had bad leadership, the leadership would go, I don't know, we haven't really been in that market, but geez, that's a whole lot of money over there. You know how many units, uh, you know, Microsoft sells for software licenses for that? You know how much they make on that exchange stuff? You know how many seats they have of, of Windows PCs? Okay. I know we're not really into that. I know we're doing this consumer digital hub thing with the iMac, but but geez, we can't we can't leave that money over there. We got to go look at that. Now, that would happen if Steve Jobs wasn't there. If Steve Jobs was over there, he would just tell them, look, if you want to use your computers, fine, here they are. We'll do some stuff to help you if you want, but we're not going to change the way we make our products for your stupid needs. We're, we're trying to make the best products possible. you know. So they'll add all that exchange stuff to iOS so you could use your corporate email with it. And they'll do, you know, they'll do the enterprise deployment for the App Store and stuff. But they're not going to slap on a hardware keyboard because you think that's what all your, you know, p- your corporate customers want. They're not going to make $200 desktop PCs that are pieces of crap because that's what the enterprise wants because they want like the volume discount Dell black pizza box thing to put all on their people's desks. They're just not going to do that. Apple's was under Steve Jobs and said, this is what we make. We'll meet, you know, we'll help you a little bit, but we're not going to be like Microsoft. So who, who was it that was going to take this market from Microsoft? Nobody was going to take it. And the reason nobody was going to take it is because either they're incapable of it or in Apple's case, they don't, they realize that like who wants to be the king. That's like fighting the old war. Microsoft won that war. He is, they are that king getting that going back there and say, ah, oh, we're the king of the desktop now. That would hurt Apple because suddenly Apple would be beholden to all those different uh, markets. And that, that's the thing, like erase Microsoft from history right now. Like a, the company blips out of existence, including all their products. And everyone is scrambling. Like, oh, my God, I have a computer. Microsoft blipped out of existence. So I need another computer. Are they all going to go out and buy Macs? Financially, they can't most of the time because like, oh, I have to my I'm allowed three hundred dollars per seat in my 10,000 person company for PCs and I can't even get iPads at that price. And Apple just doesn't do that kind of volume business. They're just they're just not they're not capable of doing that. It would bankrupt me to do that. And if you did buy all those things, 
that's just Apple doesn't have products or services that serve that market and they simply don't want it, which is part of the big reason why Apple's products are so much better than Microsoft's is because they are they're made for consumers to satisfy the needs of individual people first and corporate IT departments 20th, if at all. Right. So this big fear that Microsoft had that if they do something to anger their constituents, someone else will eat their lunch uh, was unfounded. There was no one, no one who could or wanted to take that market from them. So that's why I said if I was going to tell uh, Microsoft, oh, someone, someone in the chat room brings up OS2 Warp. That's that's another example of like... You're a big uh, Warp user. No. So IBM was going to take that market from you? Like this, Microsoft didn't quite understand how strong their position was, which is strange to think. Like OS2 Warp was going to come and take their market. IBM was is, was the even older king than Microsoft. No one was going to say, well, Microsoft is gone. Let's go back to IBM. They'll serve our needs. Uh, IBM wants to sell you its own hardware, wanted to back then. And that's corporate. He doesn't like that. They'd rather buy from Dell or Gateway, whatever the heck crap boxes they're buying. Right. Uh, and they wanted Windows compatibility with all their software. And OS2 had, did have Windows compatibility, but it was still, you know, tied to Microsoft on that. And Microsoft could slowly change things to make, you know, OS2's, you know, that, that whole OS2 Windows thing, like that, that battle was done and settled. So this, what, what I'm talking about is the point after that where Microsoft was just clearly dominant. OS2 was basically dead and was not coming back. And uh, people had settled into the routine of Microsoft gives us the software licenses and we could buy hardware from whoever we want, right? Uh, so... What I would tell Microsoft to do during this phase is uh, look at your products and decide what about them people don't like. They're too complicated. Uh, they've got lots of all the legacy crap that's in there from before that you were afraid you couldn't take out because if we take this out, it'll break a bunch of stuff. All the things that Apple did, like abandon legacy ports, break backwards compatibility, radically simplify your operating system. Uh, sort of kind of like what they're doing with Metro, where, you know, just throw everything out. And anytime anyone proposed that at Microsoft during like the, the mid 90s and late 90s when they were so dominant, people said, oh, we can't do that. We'll, you know, we will lose if we tell the corporate IT that, yeah, the next version will break a bunch of your applications, but uh, and change where everything is and radically simplify the operating system. We're just going to have to deal with it because we think this is better in the long term for everybody involved. Then, oh, no, they'll, they'll go to someone else. They'll all deploy Linux. They'll, they'll deploy Macs instead. They wouldn't or couldn't. You, Microsoft didn't understand the power and the position that it had. There was no alternative to them. They had enough power to, they had to be confident enough in their position to say, at the peak of our power, now is the time when we can make radical changes to our operating system that make it more attractive to the people who have to use it to prevent, you know, Mac OS 10 or iOS from coming and looking like such a breath of fresh air compared to the ridiculously complicated Windows. Uh, everything Microsoft did with Windows was like, well, we'll try to make a simplified version, but if you want the classic view, you can get that back. And if you want to see the classic control panel, you can see that again. You know, all, all those kind of hedging your bets and all that stuff. E even Metro, you can say like, well, Windows 8, it's totally new and unrelated. But if you want to go back to the old desktop, it's back there to switch to the other. You know, they never did the any transition that was equivalent to Mac OS X as compared to classic Mac OS. They did it with the core OS, uh, the Windows NT core that eventually became quote-unquote mainstream in Windows 2000-ish. Uh, that was a big internal reshuffle, albeit with maintaining as much backward compatibility as they could possibly keep. I think they, they abandoned like uh, old 16-bit apps and, and some old DOS stuff that had to run in a VM or whatever, but they never made that hard split 
uh, that Mac OS 10 did. And they certainly never made the hard jump that that iOS is. There's no no Mac apps, whatever, no backward compatibility, completely new platform. Because they were afraid and they didn't think they could do it. And the, what, the time that they could have done that was when they, they were at the peak of their power because nobody was willing or able to take that market from them. So even though everyone would have screamed and complained and people would have said their, their stock value would have been punished and their profits would have gone down or whatever, it's not like that business would have gone elsewhere. And eventually they could have fielded a product that was so much better than the ones that they had uh, you know, killed. And those corporate IT people had probably maybe had some bad experiences trying to deploy Linux and had fought with Apple and realized Apple is just not interested in them and would have come back to Microsoft and they would have eventually come out a winner. So this, I think, is the main thing that that Microsoft did wrong in the past few decades. The idea that it had to maintain this market because if it didn't, someone else would take it. They they underplayed their hand. Their hand was much stronger than they thought it would. Maybe and Obviously, it's easy with hindsight to say, well, how did they know Linux wouldn't take it? How did they know Apple wasn't interested in that? If if you're Microsoft, you think everybody thinks like Microsoft. You said, if we, if we abandon this market by betraying those people and doing something that we think is better for the long-term health of our product, but worse for, for our constituents who want our products to be a certain way, Apple's going to eat our lunch. Because if I was at Apple, that's what I would do. That's the Microsoft philosophy. Oh, if our competitors stumble, we swoop right in and say, whatever that competitor is no longer willing to do for you, we, we'll do that for you. We're ready to, to be your servant in this need, to be your partner in figuring out what kind of products you need. Maybe, maybe they thought that Apple would think like them. I, you know, and again, in hindsight, it's easy to, it's easy to see, oh, sure, you know, they didn't know everything that we know now about Steve Jobs and his attitude, and they, they couldn't have predicted, you know, it was too dangerous to move. This is, I admit, hindsight. You know, I'm just saying, like, if you could go back in time with full knowledge, what would be the correct move? And I think that's it. That uh, it turns out they had a lot stronger hands than they thought they did, and they didn't play it. Now, they're kind of playing it now with Metro, as I alluded to, we went to whole, several episodes in Metro where it really is a clean break, uh, except for the fact that you can still see the Windows desktop. But on the tablets and everything, like the apps don't look like they do. There's an entirely new UI paradigm, uh, you know, new APIs, the whole nine yards uh, with the hedge of the desktop hiding underneath. But I actually think that for Microsoft really to turn itself around, maybe the best thing that could happen to them is for Metro to fail miserably. And, you know, like at this point, the only option may be the 90 days from bankruptcy option where you just <laughs> everything goes to crap. The desktop starts falling apart, not because a competitor is taking your place, but because everyone starts using iPads or God knows what, like some other <laughs> some other horrible thing starts happening to your business. And you're just the company declines, sales decline, your cash cow stops being a cash cow. Your new next generation product, Metro, just fails miserably in the market. Windows 7 doesn't take off and the company shrinks to some tiny, sad, little shriveled ball of what it used to be like apple in 1996 97 right and then someone comes in with a clear vision and turns turns the thing around <laughs> you know that that may be uh that's probably not the scenario that anybody who's a microsoft fan or a shareholder or an employee wants to happen but that may be the most likely dramatic turnaround scenario at this point uh so because they they didn't back when they had the strongest hand they didn't use that hand to force uh you know to force their customers and constituents to accept a more radical change than they were ready for. Whereas that's been Apple's MO from day one of Jobs' return, forcing Apple customers, Apple developers, everybody who has a stake in, in Apple hardware or software to 
to choke down more than they were willing to choke down. It's always been their MO. Well, you're taking all our ports away. It's just USB on this iMac. Peripheral manufacturers like grumble, grumble, grumble. Okay, fine. We'll make a bunch <laughs> of USB stuff with teal plastic all over it for your iMac. You know, the, it, you're making an entirely new operating system with this Objective-C with a new language and a new API. And you're telling me this, this backward compatibility layer, I still have to modify my apps. And by the way, you're taking that away too. It's always been whatever you think you can handle. Microsoft, uh, Apple's is taking away a little bit more. Uh, ask for a little bit more, right? Uh, the, the, the app store, we have full approval in your applications. The customers aren't even ours. Uh, that's just too much. But just always, Apple's always asking for more, whereas Microsoft has just been so shy about that, not wanting to anger the people who, who it serves, not don't anger them too much, right? Uh, and I think that's just the wrong strategy for having long-term success. So I think that's the end of my Microsoft notes. Hmm. It's, it's, it's a topic that I don't see discussed a lot. Is everyone's talking about like what Microsoft should do now. Uh, but whenever anyone talks about what Microsoft did in the past, it's always about how great they did. Look at how Microsoft won the desktop market. Look at all these great moves that I make. Well, there's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that Microsoft did, though, that helped Apple. Yeah, unintentionally. Unintentionally, or, not on purpose. Or because they didn't think Apple was a threat. But it was, you know, the... the the thing I think that's most important about Microsoft history is back when everyone thought it was doing so great, back where all the stories about Microsoft were about how savvy it was in business and how it crushed Apple. That was the point where it made its, its worst mistake, not playing its hand, not not using, you know, think of think of the hands that Apple has played. I don't know if it's bluffing or what, but it would be like, like taking all the ports away from the iMac. They weren't in position of strength when they did that. They were going down the tubes. And that was the time that they, they rightly, Jobs rightly, I don't know if you call it a bluff or whatever, but he was like, you just trust me on this. Like, if we make this computer awesome looking, I know people will scream and complain that it just has USB ports, but it'll work. We'll take away the floppy drive too. Look, trust me. I know it seems crazy, but I have the people who like Apple, I think they'll go with us in this. Our hand is stronger than we think it is. Whereas if you're an outside observer, you're saying, are you kidding? You're practically bankrupt. You can't sell any computers that you have, and you're going to do a bunch of stuff that you know is going to piss off your customers, your loyal customers who, who love you, the only people who are buying your stuff anymore. Uh, but he did it. So imagine how strong Microsoft's hand was if they had done Apple-like moves back when they were so dominant. They just, like, th- their customers had nowhere to go. I've got, I've, I've got some more things I want to ask you about this. All right. Before I do, let's do our second and uh, and last sponsor. It's uh, MailChimp. They have a brand new mobile app. So you're on the go. You want to see some reports. You want to see people signing up, people reading the list. You do that. The app is uh, pretty pretty amazing. It's a brand new version. It's out there for iOS and Android. All you need is uh, iOS 4.3 or newer and Android 2.2 or newer and a MailChimp account, which is free. And it's a shortcut to your stats. It's just a few taps. You can see how your campaigns are doing. You can see what your subscribers are doing with your campaigns, if they're sharing them and how. And uh, what if you're out somewhere... And you, you have somebody and you're talking about this, this cool newsletter you do. And they're like, oh, sign me up for that. How do I have to sign up? Oh, you got to go to my website and uh, here, let me write down the URL. And then you go to slash newsletter and then you fill out the form. No. You can subscribe them right there on the spot with the app. It's amazing. Again, it's all free. Go to MailChimp.com. There's a link to it there. Or you can go to the iTunes app store and just search for MailChimp. You'll find it. It's pretty great stuff. MailChimp.com is... Uh, Long time sponsor of ours. We love them. Love what they're doing. And newsletters are a big deal. I'd sign up for a Syracuse newsletter. If there was one. Should be one. 
instead of a blog. A lot of work to write that. You would have to write it. Yeah. So looking at this, this situation, what do you feel looking forward five years from now? Not at Apple, which is what we're all fond of doing, but at Microsoft. What, what kind of company is Microsoft five years from now? In 2000, let's just say 2015. That's not quite five years from now. What, what is, what, in 2015, what is Microsoft? Is it the same thing? Are they still struggling? Have they come out with something amazing? Are they, uh, I mean, what's, what's the story? The problem I have with predicting any kind of non-boring future for Microsoft, because the boring future is like, well, they're kind of like they are now, but like their desktop business is making less money than it used to. And they're kind of trying to be more successful. Windows Phone 7 and Metro is kind of out there. And like, that, uh, that's boring though. That's not like a, they're going to be dead because they won't. And it's not like they're going to be 20 times the size that they are now or massively successful because I don't think they will. And the reason for that is that when I look at all of Microsoft's efforts, even in cases where I think they're kind of doing the right thing, albeit too late, everything they're doing is a reaction to something somebody else did. Uh, that's what it seems like to me. And the things they're not doing that, that are reactions are just never get out the door. Uh, so just look at all of their product lines. Windows Phone 7, it's a reaction to iOS. Duh. Like, like pretty much every mobile thing in the entire market since 2007 has been a reaction to the iPhone, right? Because they, Microsoft had a Windows, uh, Windows, you know, what was it called? Windows Mobile, and then it was called WinCE before that. It's great that they named the product whose, if you pronounce this acronym, is Wince. Yeah, because that was pretty much what people did when they used it. <laughs> uh, they had a mobile operating system for a long time, right? So it's like, oh, they weren't, we weren't reacting to the iPhone. We've been doing this mobile thing forever. Clearly, iPhone came out and they said, all that mobile stuff we've been doing is crap. We need to start over with Windows Phone 7. Uh, and I actually got a chance to use Windows Phone 7 for the first time for like, I don't know, three and a half minutes. I was very impressed by it. Much more impressed than I've ever been with my three minutes spent with a variety of Android or Palm phones. Were you able to try out the Siri-like functionality that Windows uh, has had <laughs> no. in the phone for decades or whatever the no, claim is? No, no, I, I, I did not try that out. Uh, I, I was just flipping around, looking at, you know, the applications, the scrolling responsiveness, how they've got stuff organized is definitely different than the iPhone, which I think is good. Uh, and actually, maybe that's a counterexample to what I'm saying, how everything they do is a reaction. A Windows Phone 7 interface and Metro interface, at the very least, is not directly derivative of things other people are doing. But I think the, the, the effort itself, that effort, we need to make next generation mobile platform because all the ones that we've had so far are not good enough because of the iPhone. That's a reaction, right? The Xbox is a reaction basically to the game console market starting to creep up its PC power, like the PlayStation 2 being so massively dominant and starting to be a powerful enough thing that, you know, it's got a net, it's got networking on it. Uh, and it's got a powerful CPU and lots of memory. And it's like, boy, you know, do we, that's starting to look like PCs we need to be in that market. So the Xbox, Xbox is a reaction to the console market that existed before them. And, and they, they did sort of the same things that the rest of the console market did. Same thing on the phone that, you know, it's got to be all screen. It's got to be all touchscreen. Yeah, we'll do a different UI, but it's reacting to the iPhone. Uh, what did I ever say? MSN is a reaction to AOL. Uh, Windows is a reaction to the Mac. Uh, what other efforts? Am I forgetting something that Microsoft's doing now? That one of their important things. Connect is a great example. Connect uh, is a reaction to Wii. You know, the, the Wii the, was the innovator yeah. there saying we're going to change the input for consoles from this little thing you hold in your hands with your thumbs to something different. Connect is more innovative than PlayStation Move because it's like, oh, no control at all. Like, but it's still a reaction to what something that a competitor did. What I don't see from Microsoft is them doing something where they're the first one to do this thing and everyone's going to be reacting to them. Uh, Bing is another example. Bing does a reaction to Google, right? They weren't the ones 
spearheading that effort. So if everything they do is a reaction to somebody else, no matter how good they are, even if they execute like 10 times better than the other guy, they'll never be the one who defined that market, the Zune, the reaction to the iPod. Uh, they'll always be playing catch-up. They'll always be behind. They'll especially behind for people like Apple who are super secretive because they have no idea what the hell Apple's doing with its TV product. So if they do something that turns out to be successful, Microsoft gets to start like on announcement day scrambling to make their competitor product. They don't get, you know, they don't get the two years of R&D that are already gone into the Apple thing or whatever. Do you think that's a big part of the Apple secrecy targeted specifically at the big companies like Microsoft that if they really had an, I mean, a lot, a lot of people are speculating that the secrecy behind Apple is, is as much for, you know, it's more about like people, they want to surprise people and they don't want people to not buy the things that they're offering out of their inventory. But maybe it sounds like you're saying that it, sure, it's those things, but maybe it's more directed at their big, big competitors like Microsoft. I think the most important, uh, for the re- the reason Apple is so secretive, I think mostly ties in with Steve Jobs' personality, but ignoring like the origins of it, why are you secretive? If I had to rank the benefits of being secretive, ignoring why, what it motivated in the first place. What, what is the actual result of this? What are the benefits? The number one benefit I would say is how, how the, the market reacts to stuff and how the consumers react. It's sort of under promise over deliver thing where they don't do the thing where they show you what they're going to give you in a year, because that is just poison because no matter what you show them, either like either they want it right now and they start thinking your existing products are crappy or they build up fantasies in their head about what it's going to be about or you don't exactly meet what you showed in the demo, like the, the whole knowledge navigator thing where they made like a fantasy video, like this is what Apple computers are going to be like in the future. And then when they're not, everyone is sad. Don't don't show anything until you've got something to show. That is the number one benefit. Of that, that, that What that does to the market is the number one benefit from Apple secrecy, that it frees them from all sorts of BS in terms of public relations, consumers, everything. It's like there is nothing but rumors until we show you the thing. And rumors is like, you know, look, there's crazy rumors about everything. Like that's not affecting their market. There's there's nothing. This, this holiday season, our people, you know, I don't want to buy an iPad because the iPad 3 is coming out and it's got a double resolution display. Maybe. Has Apple said that? No. You know, you can't, if Apple had shown like at the last WWDC and we're working on this great new iPad and look, it's got a double resolution display. It's going to be awesome. People that dampens the enthusiasm of people buying an iPad for their, you know, families this Christmas, right? Nothing. They say nothing until they're ready with the thing. And the environment that creates around Apple products from, from a consumer's perspective and for retail and for every, that is the most important result of secrecy. And also, by the way, yet another reason why they are totally incompatible with corporate IT because that's not what corporate IT wants. They want a roadmap uh, and Apple doesn't want that. So the the second biggest reason probably is not like not tipping your hand to competitors. That's what you were getting at. Like don't let people know that you're, you know, you see all these, these, uh, this footage of, uh, you know, the, the brand new version of whatever new car is coming out and how they'll have it all disguised when they're doing the, the yeah. test runs and you know when you're if if you're a if you're a fan of any kind of sports whenever they're doing their practice they they're very very careful about who can go and see them running their drills and and you know that that that's a known thing so there's part of that is that for the competitors but I guess yeah, I'm just I curious think, wh- who, where the the main concern is. Is it competitors or is it the I think, I think a secondary concern is competitors because the thing about competitors is you can't do what you do to consumers to them consumers like literally do not know if an iPad 3 exists with a double resolution display or when it's coming out or like 
all we have is just vague rumors like we get nothing solid. But competitors usually have pretty solid leads. Like, for example, if Apple is talking to every single television network, there's just no way you can hide that from competitors who are also talking to those same guys. I know Apple's going to say as part of this legal agreement, you can't say that you ever met with us, blah, 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 blah. But when it's when it's like when you're in the room with the guy running CBS and Apple guys were just there that week, you can tell whether Apple's been there or not. Even if they never say it, like it's just especially when you're doing deals with people for content, which is increasingly what this stuff is about. Other people can get wind of the big moves that Apple is making. Even like manufacturers, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have manufacturing capacity for those LCDs. Why? Well, uh, we just don't like another, you know, we can't tell you who is taking that manufacturing capacity. Or, you know, you can figure it out because you are talking directly to the same people that Apple talked to. Consumers were just talking to people who talked to people who heard a rumor who heard from this guy. You know, it's really hard to hide your strategic moves as in Apple is making a TV from your competitors. Because they're talking to all the same people you are, all the people you need to do your manufacturing, to do your business deals, to do your shipping, to do everything. But what you can hide from them is what exactly are you doing? Like they can try to piece together. They have much more solid information than consumers do about what you're doing, but they don't know exactly what the new Apple TV thing is going to be like. They just can't. So they'll be alerted. They'll be on alert like, geez, Apple's doing some TV. We got to do some TV thing. But they can't make their reaction product until they see what the heck you, you've made. And Apple is good enough with secrecy to prevent them from knowing exactly what we're going to make. So they scramble and go, oh my God, we got to make a Microsoft TV. And they make a whole big TV set with a Microsoft logo on it with like an Xbox strapped to the back or something. And it turns out Apple ships another little black box and not a television set. They, they goofed. They didn't react to the right thing. They knew there was something going on in TV. They could kind of say sometime next year, there's got to be something going on with TV. We should do something in TV, but they don't know what to do exactly. Uh, so that's, I think that's a secondary benefit to their secrecy. How do we get on to the secrecy topic again? It's a good topic. We were talking about what you, you were refusing to predict what Microsoft, what kind oh, yeah, of company right. Microsoft yeah. would be in five yeah. years. So, so I, I was saying that the thing that's keeping them back is that, that everything they're doing is a reaction to somebody else. Uh, and that's, they have, to, they have to stop that. They have to do something that is their own. They're the, they are, if you want to be a big player in this market, you have to be the first one to do this thing or the first one, to, you know, not the first one to do it, but the first one to do it well. Like, for example, Gmail. Gmail was a, a pretty big game changer for Google. Obviously, Google searched uh, like they did search better than everybody else. They're not the first one to make search, but they're the first one to just make search much, much better and just, you know, really define search, right? Uh, so that was Google's big thing. But Gmail was another example. They're not the first ones to do webmail. Hotmail was out and all those other things were out there or whatever. But Gmail changed the game just same way the iPhone changed the game where there was plenty of smartphones before the iPhone, but the iPhone had a new way to do it. That was so much more compelling the other ways that it came to define the smartphone. So Gmail just stomped on its competitors because of what I figure what it was like two gigabytes of space and it's free and it's fast and it's reliable. And this little text ads on the side instead of giant Viagra banners inlined in my, you know, it was just, you know, that defined webmail from that point on. I was like, you want to do webmail? Well, you 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 got to compete with Gmail now. Like that's you know you want to make a smartphone. Look at the iPhone because that's what you got to deal with, right? So they they Google did something. Granted, didn't you know, I don't know how much money they still they're still getting all their money from advertising, but it was sort of a defining product that wasn't following what everybody else did in that space. Uh, this this gets back to what Gruber was talking about before. Every time I say this, people are going to say, "What do you mean? You know, not following everything Apple's done has been a following of somebody else. They weren't the first ones to make the GUI. Well, the whole idea that innovation means." You are the very first one to ever do this. That's not what it means. It's, 
Think about the iPhone. That's what I keep saying. There's so many mobile phones before the iPhone, so many smartphones, so many applications on phones before the iPhone. And yet clearly the iPhone is this discontinuity. And then everything after the iPhone was changed. That type of move is what Microsoft has to do. Maybe Metro's. I don't know. A Metro, I still see Metro and Windows 8 as a reaction to iOS. It's hard not to see it that way, even though the software is so different. Uh, but if Microsoft wants to be someplace other than someplace boring in 10 or 15 years, they need to do something. I don't know what that is. That's up to them to decide what it is. Whatever, whatever they decide that is, you know, Microsoft could leverage its entire company to try to become the future of TV. Uh, you know, ditch everything else, like allow it to be cannibalized and say, we are going to be the future television, whatever they have to do, like buy up all the content with their huge cash reserves, to buy their own network for delivery or whatever. They could be the future of television and that could be their future in 15 years if they decided the point of Microsoft is to become, to become the future of television. And all those people who have been using our existing products, tough luck. They'll have to figure something out. If they all go to Apple, that we think will actually weigh Apple down like a, like a boat anchor and will help us zoom ahead to become the future of television. Not that I'm saying this is what Microsoft should do, and television is probably not the future of anything anyway, but I'm just saying like that type of, that type of move that, that Apple did in each little endeavor with the, with the iMac, with the iPhone, with, with the iPad, each one of those things Apple was willing to say, if Apple in 20 years is just the company that makes the iPad and all the other products are dead, we're fine with that because we'll just keep making new products and new products, you know? Like they're, each new product... It, they're okay with that being the, the cornerstone of their business. In fact, they hope it does eat all their other business. Like when the iPhone comes out, as it came to dominate the Mac, you know, well, even the iPod, the iPod came and suddenly Apple makes more money from iPods than Macs. Apple wasn't freaking about that. So no, no, we're the Mac company. We can't have a product that makes more money than Mac. And then the iPhone came out and made more money than the iPad. They're okay with that. And our, our iPhone made more money than the iMac or, or the iPod. They were okay with that too. And the iPhone, if you look at the chart, uh, Horace's great charts, you can see the iPad starting to, grow in the percentage of revenues and profits and everything, Apple's okay with that too. Microsoft has no charts like that. No charts where Zoom comes out and starts slowly getting to be as big as Windows and Office. And then, you know, <laughs> Metro comes out and tablets start to become as big as the Zoom. They, they just don't have that model. So where does a Microsoft going to be in 15 years without a product that's not a follower product following someone else's innovation? They're going to be like they are now, but even a little bit more sad. Like they are now, but more sad. A little bit more sad. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not saying that's, I'm not predicting it. I'm saying if they don't do that, there's no, they have so much money and so much talent and so many brains. It's just a matter of like will and priorities. And I guess making the right bet on what it is that you want to do. I, I think television would probably be the wrong bet, kind of like game consoles were the wrong bet. You know, in hindsight, like they made a great game console. But that's not where the future of the industry was. Uh, and so now they're kind of like second place game console. But even like the first play game console is terrified of iOS. Like Nintendo's out there, and, you know, getting its lunch eaten by iOS. So obviously the future was in mobile. They, I mean, Microsoft bet on mobile. They just didn't do a good job, right? Yeah, we haven't talked about games and gaming consoles on this show, <laughs> like like that industry, have we? Uh, not enough. I, I, That'd be I, a good topic for a future I, show. I would like that to be a topic for future show. I'm not sure how to focus it. It's, you know... It's kind of an amorphous concept. I don't know what... The only only thing I think of, I actually have this in my notes for this show, is talking about Nintendo. Because Nintendo, I think, is a very interesting analog to Apple, and it's also a company at the crossroads. So maybe I'll just do a whole show on on Nintendo, or on the aspects of Nintendo that remind me of Apple and that relate to Apple. So 
I'll tuck that away for, mm. for the future. Probably end the show then. Yeah. We also never talked about patents. Somehow we managed. Remember that whole patent oh, run? Yeah. Where everybody, everybody was talking about patents and I never... Uh, not that I have a particularly unique or interesting take on patents, but it would be worth throwing it to some show. You kept quiet. No, everyone else was doing, you know, people had more of a connection. Like Marco had a more direct connection with the with the whole Lodzis thing and stuff like that. So it's better to leave that to them. And I forget what I was talking about at the time, probably something completely unrelated. So it didn't quite fit in, but maybe I'll circle back to it eventually because, you know, it doesn't leave the news, stays in there. We should end it then. I think so. Too bad you don't have any uh, turkey sitting there waiting for you to go eat for late late lunch. No, well, I, what I did bring to Thanksgiving was the dessert. So I got a lot of <laughs> got a lot of desserts in the house. That's kind of bad though, because like yeah, I was going to say that, that you say that like it's a good thing. Yeah, just well, I know you, you're. But in general, you don't want to load up on that stuff. No matter yeah, even if even if you love it, even if you love desserts. You can have too much of your favorite dessert, and then you just don't want to have it anymore. Hmm. That never it's, happened to me. It's not, it happens to me. It's not true of like your favorite savory food. I think mostly not true. Like it's like not like you're you're burning out on steaks, and you're like, oh, I just can't. I can't have another steak. I had steak three times last week. You still <laughs> like steak, but if you ha- have you had apple pie three times last week, and it came time for dessert, you wouldn't be up for the apple nah, pie. Not be- me. What do you mean for dessert anyway? We save it for the after dark, but <laughs> yeah, we'll save it for the after dark. All right. All right so All listen, right. I've, uh, people who are enjoying this episode, we don't have a lot of show notes, uh, but I've actually been making some tweaks to the show notes. Uh, a little bit of feedback. Somebody emailed to say, Dan, uh, you refer to the show notes. And then when I actually go to the show notes page, it says episode links. What are you trying to do to me? So I've actually fixed that and, and a, a number of other things. And I did something just for you, John. I haven't deployed this yet. Uh, but in my early morning coding uh, efforts over the last uh, week or so, I've been doing, making little enhancements. And one of them is something that I, I think you might or might not care about. You, your friends at the Incomparable podcast on 5x5 probably would or will care about this. But uh, I've made a place for there to be extended notes, which can include embedded links and things like that. So if you want to do like a mini blog post along with an episode, you can now do, there's a, a place for you to do that. And people I, may be listening to this, wondering what it is. We have show notes. The show notes, by the way, are, are sponsored by helpspot.com, which is great. Check them out. Uh, but you can go to five by five TV slash hypercritical slash 44. And all of the links and things that the John and sometimes me have found uh, they will be there, right there. And uh, you can follow John on Twitter at Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And uh, rate the show in iTunes. There was somebody emailed to say that there were 666 reviews of this show or ratings. Not of this show. It was a different show, wasn't Are it? Are you sure? I thought it was we, this one. We've got uh, reviews or ratings? Ratings. No, this is the, we're way over that number of ratings. Okay. Although we should be higher. Everybody just go and click the little stars. We're stuck. We're stuck around a thousand ratings. Oh. I just want to power through that. Yeah. But that's it. So uh, glad you had a good Thanksgiving, and everybody, uh, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. Thanks, John. Yep. <laughs>